Um, Jonah chapter 1, and we're in verses 10, 11 through 17. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this to you? Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So last week we read of that dramatic moment when the uh, mariners cast the lots to find out why, why was this storm happening? And surely someone was at fault and God, God or the gods were angry. The mariners were not Jewish, they were Gentile. And uh, so they were asking the gods, who did this? And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. His poor testimony was that he was fleeing from the presence of God, the God who created the land and sea. And the shocked mariners uttered the same expression that the Lord said to Eve when she had sinned and to Cain when he sinned. It was, what is this have you have done? It's followed by an exclamation point. It's not really a question. It's a declaration of horror. Like, what in the world did you do? It's more like that. That's how we would say it. Now, the mariners had to find out what they needed to do to, if it was his fault, the lot fell on him, what do you need to do to uh, get out of this storm, to save the ship? It was going to be inundated with water. They had to do something. They had already thrown all the cargo overboard. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So the storm was getting increasingly worse. So they asked Jonah, well, if, you're, if it's you and um, you're trying to get away from your God, what do we have to do to quiet the storm down? They did not know the God of creation. They worshiped other gods. And so since it was Jonah's God who brought this storm, they asked Jonah, what's going to appease your God? Uh, for pagans, it was usually um, money, uh, an animal that you would give to the priest, some, some kind of offering, and your God would no longer be upset with you. Um, not so with the God of the Hebrews. Now, Jonah could have said, uh, turn the ship around and head back to the closest port towards Nineveh. I wonder why he didn't say that. I don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I mean, that's the way I would have thought to get out of it. Uh, but apparently Jonah didn't think 
or believed that his, he believed that his rebellion was so serious that God wanted his life. He, and so he decided, well, I, he didn't count on the mercy of God, and we wonder why he didn't see that mercy. Later on, of course, he's going to realize how great God's mercy is towards sinners. So verse 12, he says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down, for I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Throw me into the sea. Now, why didn't he just run and jump overboard? Maybe he just couldn't bring himself to do it. He confessed that he knew it was because of him. Jonah was willing to die for these pagans, and he, maybe he thought he was going to die either way. Go to Nineveh, they'll kill you. Jump, be thrown in the sea, you're going to die. So you might as well not be guilty of the death of these pagans as well. So throw me into the sea. And this foreshadows what Jesus did for us. Jesus did not want to do what God was asking him to do. We know that because of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Growing up, Jesus had seen people crucified on the sides of the road. In the northern region of Israel, in Galilee region, there had been an uprising when Jesus was a young boy and Jews were crucified along the sides of the roads. He knew the horror of that death. And he asked the Father if there's some other way Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was willing to yield to his father's will from the very beginning. He was following his father's will. And that will was to carry the sins of mankind into death to save our eternal souls by leaping into an ocean of suffering and separation from his father. Jonah offered himself up to save the mariners. Jesus offered himself up to save the lost souls of humanity. Jonah probably thought he had no other options. But for Jesus, it was greater love as no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I don't think Jonah loved those Gentiles, those mariners on the boat, because later we'll see he doesn't really love the people that God's sending him to, the Ninevites. But neither did he want to be guilty of their deaths. And perhaps he thought it was better to drown than to face what the Ninevites might do to him. The turmoil in his soul was mirrored by the ocean waters. And the more he hesitated, the more tempestuous they became. He knew what he had to do. Now, in a storm, it's really hard to hear the howling wind, the waves crashing. He probably had to yell over the storm, throw me into the sea, and then it'll quiet down. And I imagine the shock on the mariners' faces. What? Throw you into this raging ocean? Your God, is that serious? Their gods would, wouldn't have demanded anything like that. And that's the great difference between the Bible and other faiths. The biblical view of sin is much greater and costly than the world's view of sin. People often ask me about <clears throat> Israelites offering animals as sacrifice. Why all that blood, they say. 
Some even say the Bible portrays a bloody God. What could better illustrate, though, the cost of sin than blood? In Leviticus, it tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. So what God is showing us is sin is so serious, it demands life. Now, they may have sacrificed an animal, but it was to the priests so that they could have meat. Some cults did offer human sacrifice, but the God of the Bible said he abhorred that. So why would he sacrifice his son? It's because his justice had to be satisfied. God did not want Jesus to have to die, but he loves humanity enough to let him give himself for us. He made man in his image, and he seeks to have that image restored. But we first need to realize the seriousness of sin and that justice has to be met. God cannot be unjust. Just think for a moment. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, every painful death by illness, every sexually violated man, woman, or child, every chronic pain, every death itself, could have been avoided. Our sins going to affect others who affect others who affect others. And God abhors that. So he illustrated how costly sin is with animal sacrifice, which pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the only one that could take away our sin debt, the cross of Jesus. The innocent taking our place and giving us his righteousness in exchange then the power of sin is broken in our lives. Now we still struggle with it, but the chains are gone. We can choose to let God's spirit help us respond in a righteous way. It's not God who is bloody. It is our sin. Verse 15, or 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Man tries to save himself, but it's a vain effort. These mariners could not at first bring themselves to throw Jonah into the sea, and we'll see in their prayer that they did not want to be guilty of innocent blood they had God-given consciences and they were doing their best to live up to it. They rode hard to get to land, but the more they did, the worse the storm got. And this represents for us a good person who thinks by obeying his conscience, he can please God. We underestimate the world, our fallen nature, and the devil. But then storms come into our lives and we realize good works just are not enough. We get into situations and, and we want to or feel that we must violate our conscience. And then we live with the, with the guilt. And no amount of rowing is going to get us to dry land. The world offers no solution for guilt. They say, don't worry about it. It's natural. Everyone does it. Just forget it. But in the quiet moments, at funeral services, or awake in the middle of the night, and the burden of guilt nags at us, 
It's another one of those blessings in disguise to bring us to Christ. He is the only one who can take that guilt from us. And he gladly does it for all who will come to him. That's why he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why are we weary? What's this heavy load that's weighing down our souls? It's our guilt. And only who in Jesus, who takes it from us and forgives us, do we find rest for our souls. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, when you see those all capitals in, in the scripture, that's, taught, that's a translation of Yahweh, the God, the eternal God of Israel, the one who told Moses, I am that I am. Tell the Israelites that is my name. They are praying, these Gentile Mariners are praying to the God of Israel. The God that created the land and the sea, as Jonah described him. If this God would cause a storm because his prophet tried to run from his presence and, and then would require them to throw him in the ocean, they feared what he might do to them if they took his life. The Mariners knew that taking a life displeased God. So they prayed that they wouldn't reap what they were about to sow. Do not let us perish for taking the life of this innocent man. Now, of course, Jonah was not innocent. He was in the middle of rebelling against God. The world sees mankind's rebellion against God as a light thing. Jesus, however, was the only innocent person. They pleaded on the basis that they were doing what they believed would please God. Now, actually, in this verse, we see the gospel. Underline it, highlight it. This verse and the next, Jonah represents both the first and the second Adam. He's like the first Adam, the one in the garden, the guilty one, who has endangered all of humanity who are with him in this boat of life because of his sin. He disobeyed God's command, and he should die. He's like the second Adam, Jesus, and the innocent one who willingly is thrown into the sea of humanity to die so that we might live. Shortly after the life of Jonah, around 700 B.C., Isaiah predicted of Jesus one day suffering and dying with a similar expression. The prophet wrote, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That prophecy has the shocking declaration that it pleased the Lord to bruise this Messiah, to put him to grief. And then it tells us why. His soul had to be an offering for sin. It explains why God is not pleased with sacrifices and yet was pleased with Jesus' willingness to be a sacrifice. He will see the fruit of it, the passage says. He'll live despite his death. That's a prediction of resurrection and thus pleasing the Lord greatly with his deeds. 
Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. As soon as they threw him into the sea, the storm stopped. Do you think the men were probably converted at that moment? If you were a sailor and you thought Neptune ruled the sea or Baal ruled the wind and the waves, this event would make you rethink who God is. And that's what happens when people see transformed lives that were once raging and now have found peace. When they found out it was Jesus who brought peace to a raging soul, they'll reconsider if it is money or fame or relationship with any other person that can calm the storms in their life. The sea of humanity has been raging since the fall of the first couple and there's only one way to find peace. But still, people seek that peace in power or possessions, and so the world rages on with storms of souls, storms in families, storms in nations. This is reminiscent of Jesus being wakened in the middle of the storm on Galilee when the disciples thought they were gonna perish. Jesus calmed the wind and the waves with his command and they marveled and asked what manner of man he is. Jesus asked them, where's your faith? One word from Jesus and storms cease. We just need to realize he is in the boat with us and call on him. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The result of witnessing the God of Jonah's power over the sea caused the men to have a great reverential awe of the Lord. That was the same reaction Jesus' disciples when Jesus stilled the storm. These were Jonah's first converts that we know of, he had to offer his life for them to see the power of God. And they responded to their newfound faith in the only way they knew how, offering sacrifice and making vows. This should be the response of those we know when we tell them of Jesus offering himself to save us and how he can make our raging cease and bring peace to our souls. 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know, there's been a great deal of skepticism expressed about a human being being able to survive in a fish for three days. Is it possible? Not with any fish that we know of, but the skepticism comes from those who don't believe the God of Jonah as Jonah declared him to be the maker of the land and sea, could do such a thing. I wanna, do we have that video clip? Can we play that? Okay. Uh, just give me a shout out when you get to it. Recently, in fact, last week, it was amazing that it timed with this message because during last week, um, a couple of kayakers were whale watching and were swallowed by a humpback. I just thought it was interesting timing. Now I'm not saying Jonah's fish was a humpback. I don't think it was because I don't think you could survive in a humpback whale. 
How's it going? Okay. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll show it at the end. Someone had to create the marvelous language of DNA that resulted in all the variety that we see in life on the earth. It's just a four-letter alphabet. And yet all the incredible variety comes out of that four-letter alphabet that makes up the instruction manual for every living thing from microorganisms to giant whales and human beings. I can't imagine making up a language with four letters, let alone using it to write the instruction manual for the creation of every part of every living thing which builds itself and repairs itself from the surrounding elements. <laughs> uh, give, some, give the scientists of the world that challenge. Make something that builds itself and repairs itself from the elements around it. Man cannot come up with anything remotely similar. AI is a baby's toy compared to DNA. And what variety it can describe, from bacteria that eats electricity, to sequoia trees that live thousands of years, to cheetahs that, with speeds that rival a sports car. I particularly, you know, if, if you're a regular here, you know I love to go diving, and I love the underworld uh, variety. Okay, we've got, we've got it. So let's show that just for a second here. See that? Two ladies, uh, each on a separate kayak. They said it was light, and all of a sudden it was dark. And the whale spit them out after a little bit, but they both survived without any injuries. <laughs> yeah. Would that blow your mind? <laughs> so I love to go diving and see the variety of God's underwater world, because it's so different from above water. And did you know the loggerhead turtle, my a uh, female my, uh, loggerhead will, will rack up over a million miles in its lifetime. And it knows exactly where it is at any given moment, its latitude and its lon longitude precisely. In its head, it's got a little GPS system designed by DNA, written in code, and, and it knows exactly where it is. That's why it can go right back to the very beach that it was born on and lay eggs for the future generation after crossing the ocean and coming all the way back. How did it, how long did it take man to create a device that could do that? And what do you think they would say to you if you told the creator of a GPS device, I don't think you did it, it happened by accident. It didn't take any intelligence to make that. I don't think you'd appreciate it. <laughs> on the ocean floor, there are these sea cucumbers. They're about, they're, you know, and that, about that size, and they're about that thick. Uh, there's all kinds of varieties of them. And when they're attacked, they puke their guts. 
and a fish that's attacking them eats the guts, and the guts are like super glue and seals the predator's throat shut. And then they regrow their guts. I'd like to see an evolutionist explain that one. <laughs> I was diving with a guide one time, and we came upon this octopus, and we played with it for a while, you know. Um, it's, they're so hard to spot. That's why I love being with a guide, because they spot them easier than I do, because they have no skeleton, and they can conform to the configuration of whatever they're on, bumpy or flat or whatever, and they take on the same color as the object they're on, even though they cannot see color. <laughs> Chop off an arm, and it will grow back. Even if their central nervous system is damaged, it will grow back. Now, uh, doctors have been trying for generations to figure out how can we grow nerves back. Well, God already put it into an octopus. Their blood system is based on copper, not iron. And they store the spent copper to use for ink to escape their predators. The cloud of ink lets them get away. Amazing creatures. My guy, when we got on the surface, my guide said, you know, if, if ever there was an alien species, I would think it was an octopus. Corals are, corals are alive, but they move their location only by growth, much like a tree, but they have tiny moving parts for reproducing, for feeding, and for attacking other corals with stinging tentacles. And at certain times, under just the exact right conditions, they bloom and send out millions of spores to start new corals that the currents carry to the right places. And the variety of them is astounding. All that variety was built in the instruction manual of DNA code. Now, if you believe that code is an accident, you've got a huge amount of faith. I really respect that kind of faith. <laughs> faith in chance and time. Messing with the DNA code is playing God and can be catastrophic. That's a quote from an immunologist. Biologists are starting to see the complexity of DNA and recognizing that 99.9% .9 of mutations are harmful, they've decided they have to add more, time, more life and more chance than we know is possible. And so they suggest that we live in a multiverse. There are millions of universes, billions, trillions, who knows, quadrillions of universes, and we happen to be the one in which life accidentally developed. Other scientists face the fact that even with a multiverse, it's impossible, so they say aliens planted DNA on the planet, and that DNA evolved. Well, we have to ask, where'd the alien come from? Or we could say, yeah, and we know his name. <laughs> it's God. <laughs> what faith it takes to ignore God as creator. So I say all that to say believers in God's word with all the complexity and interconnectedness of life look at DNA and all the variety, and we say, of course, our God's creative. And we read about him appointing a great fish, and we say, sure, he could make a great fish. Look at everything he's made in the world. 
He can make a fish in which a human could survive. Now, next week, we're going to find out Jonah was barely surviving. Um, he was fighting for air. He was wrapped with stuff that other stuff the fish ate, and it was pretty miserable uh, three days and three nights. But he survived. God can make a fish in which a man can survive. That's not a problem for believers. He reveals his divine nature in his creation. It's as easy for him to create a great fish as it is for him to put a GPS system in the head of a logger turtle. Or making sea cucumber puke its guts to protect itself or make a copper-based blood system for a getaway escape for an octopus. It all depends on your worldview. The evolutionist is operating on faith that an enormous amount of complexity can come from just time and chance, while at the same time recognizing that things left to themselves tend to disorder, not order. The biblical worldview believes in a super intelligent creator who codes life with the instruction language of DNA that he designed. And we say a great fish in which a human could survive, that's easy for our God. Jonah's time in the fish is symbolic of our times of crisis when God gets our undivided attention. It may be the diagnosis of cancer, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, betrayal of a friend, or something similar in which we're completely at a loss and we don't know where to turn. That's where Jonah was in the belly of that fish, in total darkness. But the most important picture we should see in this account is that of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. For Jesus said, Teacher, uh, they asked him, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah's time in that great fish foreshadowed Jesus' time in the tomb. In the next chapter, Jonah's going to write in poetic style, that he cried to God from the belly of the grave. Why did he call it a grave? We see there an interesting combination of the belly of the fish and grave. He was in the fish belly. Jesus was in the grave. But more on that next Sunday. It's been said that man is either going into a storm in a storm, or coming out of a storm. Can you all relate to that? Such is life in this fallen world. But we need to hear the only one to ever offer true rest for our souls, invite us into his rest, to forgiveness, to removal of the burden of guilt, and equipping us to live a new life. He was cast into the sea of humanity to die for our sins and conquer death 
so that we might truly live. Amen.